You're listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. Shane Lockie O'Loughlin arrived in the Kimberley at the age of 16. He'd already left both home and school at the age of 12, and now he had something to prove. However, Lockie's start in the Kimberley was anything but smooth sailing. Over the past 40 years, Lockie has lived a life full of adventure and learning. There's not many places in the Kimberley he hasn't set foot on, either as a stockman working for other people or running his own bull-catching business. For our final episode of 2022, Lockie shares stories that only a few people have heard while sitting around a campfire, and it's a true privilege to have him on the show. Didn't have much to do with my mum and dad, so I was always trying to be on my own. Actually, I thought I was Daniel Boone for a while. I was always building something or living on the river. And, yeah, I was really good at sports when I went to school. I was never good at reading or writing, or and I probably wasn't interested in reading or writing. And a lot of the kids in the in my school in Queensland, I was brought up around Sharat Tara, quite a lot of us couldn't read or write. And um, so the teachers sort of put a focus on whatever we really liked to do back then and, and that was playing football or, or running. So we got sort of treated more with our sports than we did learning. So we never, ever did learn. So, um, I hear that you yeah. hold a, a record in sports. Yeah. When I was in grade six, I broke, uh, um, Queensland champion record for the 800 meters and, um, I ended up right down in, in running in Brisbane and, not a lot of track people wanted me back then because uh, spikes just started coming out and I couldn't wear boots as a run. I was a barefoot kid. So, um, so yeah, that held me back a fair bit, like, you know, but in the black soil, I could run like a bloody trooper. But, um, yeah, and I held that record in like school days, 17 years for the 800 metres in, in Queensland. And yeah, played a lot of football, uh, rugby back then. And, um, and I, yeah. Every time I come, you know, as I got older, I sort of played more and more games every weekend. So, yeah, football and running was my biggest thing when I was younger. I've heard stories before of kids leaving school early, but you actually left at the age of 12, which is the earliest I've I've heard of. How did that come about? Yeah, I was just in Surat, and I think um, the teacher at the time sort of um, wanted to interview with my father and mother, and they more or less said that they didn't see me going any further with my reading and writing, um, that they thought that it wasn't, you know, viable for me to stay any longer. So, um, and at the same time, my parents were working on a place called Undulla, um, or Dilga it was called, sorry, just out of Glen Morgan. And, and um, at the same time, luckily, we had people out there painting the station and and my parents was telling them that, the teachers weren't interested in me being at school anymore. So this guy called Frank Nutter took me on as an apprenticeship. 
as a painter. After, you know, they said that they would, and then they asked me, and I thought, well, if, I, if it means I've got to move out of home and travel from station to station, what a great opportunity. So, yeah, I jumped aboard with um, Frankie and Robbie, which turned into the best mum and dad boss I've ever worked for. Um, so, yeah, I pretty well did painting with them right up until I was nearly 16 or around 16 and then, yeah, then I left. I thought I'd had enough time being a painter. I'd never sort of, yeah, I wanted to be a ringer and um, that's when I headed to the Kimleys. And so when you left school, this would have been the early 1970s, is that right? I mean, sorry, the late 1970s? Yeah, late 70s. So at 12 years old, so that would put you in, say, grade six or seven, Yeah, the teachers have said you're behind in your reading and writing and rather than try and help you catch up, they just suggested you get pulled out of school. Like, yeah. I, was that a common thing back then? Um, mate, they sort of gave me an option, you know. They said, oh, we're doing um, science today. Are you interested? And I'd get, Or would you rather run around the Oval? And I, or would you l- rather go and train on the Oval? So I, of course, would say, oh, I think I'll just go and train on the Oval. Um, they never, ever pulled my parents in to... I don't think to tell them that I was struggling with reading and writing. Um, I got asked many a times, like, um, back then we had calculators. You interested in learning how to do a calculator or would you rather train on the football field or train? So yeah, I, and I think most of my teachers, cause I went to two different schools and I was a sportsman of, you know, the, of each school for running and, all sorts of sports, so I'm sure that most of the principals loved having me at school just for my sportsmanship instead of reading and writing. It was never an option. They never asked if it was, you know, and it wasn't only me. There were six or seven kids in the same level that I was, went to that same school. I just can't help but feel like you were done a disservice by no one kind of rooting for you and trying to help you because no matter what you'd gone on to be in life, reading and writing is kind of crucial to most, to just like being to able to do things in society, whether it's have a bank account or read the newspaper or, and I know times are different back then, but I just kind of can't help but feel like you got a bit of a raw deal. Do you ever feel that way? Oh, hundred percent. And you know, like, especially when you grow up and um, it took me a long time to explain to other people that I, I couldn't, read or write and I remember when I did leave school and I did my apprenticeship I did it all through tape recorder um, where I could get take the same book work home and listen to a tape and it explained what was going on I don't know why the school couldn't have done something like that for me um, and to t- try to explain to other people that I couldn't read or write I never told anyone because I was too embarrassed and I remember when I did leave school I, I had a girlfriend and and years later I left and my girlfriend would write me letters. I was too frightened to let someone read the letters. <laughs> so she ended up leaving me because I wouldn't return a letter to her. So it's, um, but anyway, stuff happens. I remember I had all these letters, but never ever got read yeah. by anybody because I thought, shit, you know, how do I do this? So I just then took it on the hand, which now I've got a telephone and I send a lot of messages. I read a lot of messages all through Siri. Which I picked up a little bit in time, but I still struggle with my reading and writing. And so, at the age of sixteen, when you finished that apprenticeship, that was when you made the big journey across from Queensland to the Kimberley with your brother. Tell me about that. 
yeah, I, I didn't want to leave, um, but it was time to move on. I sort of was starting to, you know, mix with the wrong people, I suppose, and uh, my and I was so lucky. My my police, the policeman of the the sergeant of police in our town at the time was also my football coach, so nothing went by him that he didn't know, and. He more or less told me to pull my head in and, you know, like he helped me out as well and said, like, you know, you're getting bored. You need to do something a bit different. And, and, um, then my brother sort of rocked up from the territory somewhere or something was going on. And he said he was heading over to the Kimleys and to Gordon Downs, which is just out of Halls Creek. And I said, well, I'm coming. So I went and seen who I call my mum and dad, my boss and told him that I wanted to leave, which I was nearly finished my apprenticeship by the time. Um, and yeah, they sadly accepted it because they knew that I wouldn't be a painter all my life. And, um, so yeah, away we went. We headed to Halls Creek in 1981 and the start at Gordon Downs. What was the trip over like? How do you, how did you get from Queensland up there? I guess, did you, how, how long did it take? Oh, geez. I tell you, it was the worst time of the year. We come in the middle of the wet and, uh, my brother had a ute at the time and we, it rained the whole way. We got caught in floods. We got, oh, crikey. We ended up in the Northern Territory, um, stuck in one little place. I'm not sure of the, the name of the place now. Around Tanner Creek there, I think it was. And at the end, it rained so much. Um, the manager from Gordon down sent us a plane and we ended up having to plane it in, leave our car at Tanner Creek and, and get a lift to Gordon Downs in an aeroplane. Like it took us weeks of, Living in our swag, saturated with rain, all our gear was wet. Oh, we lived on tin food, and uh, it was a big experience. And I was wondering, shit, why did I come over to the Kimbers? I should have stayed painting. But once we got here, and it brightened up, and into the into the um, Gordon Downs, it was quite amazing. And you know, like just to, back then, like when I landed at Gordon Downs, there was a lot of Aboriginal people too stuck at Ring of Soak, and so that was a massive experience, meeting the Aboriginal people as well that I've never mixed before. I, you know, it was sort of, yeah, I don't know, it was all this one amazing experience, just bang, it hit me, and I thought, man, this is the place to be, so. Were you close with your brother? Did you guys get along? Not really, <laughs> no. We never got along. He was always the bigger brother, and I was always that person that was never going to know anything or do anything, and... Uh, yeah, sadly we've had a big fallout and, you know, we don't talk at the moment, but, you know, he'll always be my brother and that's just how things roll, I think, you know, like, um. At the time, would you say, like, having him there for that first adventure so far away from home was important or did you guys kind of end up in kind of different jobs once you got there? Oh, look, I stuck there with him for a little while and, um, our manager was a bit of a, yeah, control freak, and um, I left not long after. I think I'd done four months at Gordon Downs, and then I moved on. And, yeah, best thing I've ever done, actually, and that just kept me moving through the Kimleys and meeting bigger and better people. And, yeah, I think moving from my brother was the best thing I've ever done. I spent about four months on Gordon Downs, and um, and we had this, this manager was called Jack Johansson. He had a nickname, Juggler Jack. Very aggressive man. He loved his alcohol and we were mustering, hadn't seen the station for about eight weeks and um, while we were out mustering, we were blocked up on a waterhole and an aeroplane 
Poland, who was um, Joel's loader, which was Peter Sherwin, who owned Gordon down the floor of Valley at the time, was his main man from station to station. And next minute this plane flew really low over us and turned and to come back. And I, I thought I'd be smart and jumped off and threw a rock at the plane. It was so low because he frightened all the cattle and we we're trying to put the cattle back together. So he turned the plane again and took me off my horse. Like he didn't hit me. I had to go off the horse. He would have hit me. And at the same time, our manager, Johansson, turned up. And then Johansson, a few days later, went into the Horse Creek Police and tried to get something done about what he just seen happen to me on a horse. And so he got a letter read up and uh, come out and we'd all come back from the camp and we're in the station and he got everyone to read this letter and and I listened to it all and then I was the sort of the last person and by this stage he was quite drunk and violent and he wanted me to read it and then I had to tell everyone I couldn't read and that was quite embarrassing back then. I never let anyone know that I left home at a very young age because of my reading skills and I'd had enough and I said, well, everyone else has read it and blah, blah, blah and then he started saying that, you know, offensive words where you were dumb and you can't read and whatever. So I, I um, actually pulled out of my first job at Gordon Downs and most of the stockmen and people who was there at the time left with me. And I was so lucky the next morning, it was mail day, where Jack Camp's daughter, Snooksy, was coming over to collect the mail. And we had no telephones. We had only radio call back then. And she let her dad know, old Jack, that... um we were all pulled out and he gave me a job at Flora Valley and um, that's so away we went. And I was at Flora for uh, yeah about another four months with old Jack. It was just the most amazing thing and I just had the perfect person to teach me what I wanted to learn with horsemanship and driving graders and everything else. So I was quite, quite lucky there. So after about the first two months, I went back to see my brother and this Johansson turned back up to um, talk me into staying back on the place, and I told him I was quite happy with old Jack. So he disappeared to get us another beer to come back with a gun and threatened to shoot me, had me on the ground with the gun on my forehead when my brother come running in and wrestled him off, and I hit the pins and jumped in this old Toyota that had a flat battery, but I had it up on a bit of a ridge, so I roll-started it and got it going, and I was coming across what they called a sturt, like a big waterway that was dry at the time, and I smashed into a bull. Very fit. I'd left the Toyota and kept running through scaredness towards Flora Valley, and um, I ran and ran to whatever time I'm not sure, and I half fell asleep. Well, I fell asleep right on the edge of the road, and at break of daylight, I felt this car ran my hair over, which was centimetres from my head, and it was Jack um, Camp had got up that morning and sent his daughter. He knew something was wrong, so he sent the daughter and another person looking for us, which her Toyota tyres near ran my head over, just ran my hair over, which, you know, <sighs> turned everything into a bit of a panic and a fright. And, yeah, we got back and... Um, Jack was very good. He sort of got on to the police, let him know after he heard my story what happened. And, you know, not much really happened to what would happen today, but Peter Sherwin and everybody escorted 
the old manager off the station, Johansson, and uh, yeah, that's sort of pretty well how I got to move up into the Fitzroy area then because um, they wanted me to pay for the Toyota and old Campy uh, moved me up, got his daughter from Fairfield to come over, Susie, and her partner Lionel was the manager of Fairfield. And, yeah, thank you to Campy. That's uh, He got me to move over with Susie um, to work for her partner because he said the Kimleys was a beautiful place and one day I'd be a good ringer and I'd be still here. So he moved me then over with his daughter, which I'm still here today, and that's uh, how I got into the Kimleys. That's a fairly traumatic experience to have in your first couple of months in a new place so far away from home and at the age of 16, mm. to have somebody have a gun to your head, a man that had already, you know, basically been a bully and was somebody that was intimidating and put fear into his staff. How lucky that your brother came in at that time. And Yeah, yeah, I, I never really got to thank him, I suppose. I, um, Yeah, it's sort of funny thing, you know, like, more, some days I do think about it, and um, he had a nickname, Juggler Jack, this guy. He sort of he used to get people down and get them by the juggler, apparently, and, um, yeah, I'll never forget his look and looking up at him thinking, oh, my God, and I, it did flash through me that it was probably going to be my last job on the Kimberley in the in the Northern Territory. And But, look, we got through it, and Jack Camp, pulled me under his wing and I was so glad that, you know, sometimes stuff like that happens to make you move to a better place and Jack really looked after me. He um, taught me a lot and um, I remember he, he knew that what I had happened to me would probably be, you know, playing on my mind. So he thought, bugger it, I'll teach this young fella how to drive a grader and the, t- the lessons was grab your lunch, grab your smoker and a bottle of water, catch up with me on the grader with a Toyota. So I caught up and he waved me up and I ran up and he said, get your lunch and your water bottle. So I ran back, got the car, bought it for it, got on the got on the grader and his lessons was this control does that, this control does that, this is how you turn your blade, 12 kilometres ahead of you, turn around and come back and he jumped off the grader and just left me go. And I thought, buddy bastard, you know, and I... But you know what? I had 12 kilometres to think about it and work it all out and, and, uh, it was the best experience I ever had. And they had me draw, uh, driving that grader for months on Flora Valley. And I just thought, wow, what an experience. So yeah. I love hearing these stories about old Jack Camp because his grandchildren are some of my very close friends and his son, Peter, um, hasn't, he hasn't done a podcast yet. You never know. Never yeah. say never, but they're a beautiful family that I count as family. So it's just so nice. And I get, never got to meet old Jack. So it's yeah. just so nice to hear stories about, about him. And I know you said, actually, I know there's a bit of a funny story where you accidentally punched him. <laughs> Tell oh, me. <laughs> yeah. Look, I idolized Jack. And, um, after spending about six weeks or so on the grader, Jack said, right, we better bring her into the shed and we'll service it, you know, and put new blades on it. And anyway, I, um, we couldn't get the bolts undone to take the cutting edges off. And Jack gave me this spanner with a massive big bit of pipe on it. And he was on the other side of the blade holding it with a set of Stilsons. And I had full strength on this bar and 
as Jack popped his head up to see if everything was going all right, the spanner let go and I punched Jack right between the eyes with this, with my fist, with a full bloody bit of pipe in my hand. It was so hard I knocked the poor old fella clean out. And as I'm trying to pick him up and sit him up on the ground, his wife walked in and thought I'd hit Jack meaning to, so next minute she's kicking the shit out of me in the shed and, <laughs> and punching me and and Jack sort of sat up and coming to, leave him alone, it wasn't his fault, poor little thing, leave him alone, and by this stage she'd laid the boot into me quite a, <laughs> anyway, we um we thought, we sat down that afternoon, well, we laughed about it every day for about a month, I think, that uh, the flog and I got from the hit that I give Jack or, you know, but yeah, so, but it just didn't stop there. Whatever Jack did, he took me under his wing if it was on a horse. And, and, um, I remember back then, like we lived in the camp and there wasn't much food. And I know we all ended up with boils and I had one leg so swollen with boils. And all I could hear was Jack was keep up and you knew not to slow down. So the experience just went on and on. And then God bless him. He's the man who got me into the Kimleys, you know, he, um, he knew the the shit that happened when I got the gun taken to me and the Toyota that I wrecked. Um, what the big managers wanted him to do, he didn't agree with it. And he's got his daughter uh, Susie to come all the way from Fairfield to spend the weekend with him and um, to send me back. That's uh, how I got into the Kimleys. So, so it's like you've gone from polar opposite. So being with, and they're both called Jack. So Jack Johansson who was a bully and and made fun of you for not being able to read and write and then later on held that gun at your head and then you've gone next door within the same company to another Jack who's just taken you under his wing, cared for you, treated you like his own yeah, and, you know, built you up, supported you. 100%. And, and got yeah. you started. And, uh, and then sent me down to his family and um, and all the camps in my eyes are very successful people, you know, and, um, and then I worked for... Georgie, um, so Susie was married to the manager Lionel, and Georgie, um, Jack's son was running the camp at Fairfield. So I spent three years under Georgie and Jack, um, Susie and Lionel, which were amazing people. And it was such a beautiful place to work as well, Fairfield, because we joined camp with Leopold, Peter Gray was the manager, Kevin Brock was the head stockman. It was great. Aboriginal stockmen. There was great um, ethic of white stockmen. I think I was the biggest jackaroo there when I first rocked up. But you know what? It was a great place to learn quick and um, ball throwing and all the rest. It was just amazing. Best move I ever did. When you say you were the biggest jackaroo when you got there, do you mean that as in you were the most inexperienced person? Inexperienced Yeah, okay. Yeah. 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 And also, again, there's another, I just, I feel like for our listeners that have listened to a lot of episodes, I want to pull out these connections. You said Peter Gray, and he's the grandfather of Connie Wood, who's done about three or four episodes on this podcast. So again, I love how it's a big world, but it's a very small world. Yeah. Well, it's so funny again. Um, and then when I started from Fairfield to move to Leopold, um, Jamie Gray, which is Connie's dad, um, was a very young stockman and a very experienced stockman, got to run his first camp at Fairfield and he was allowed to pick someone from Leopold because I'd moved to Leopold for one year. And Well, Jamie picked me and took me back to Fairfield to be under him 
work, you know. So it was amazing that the stuff that I learnt from Jamie because um, Connie's dad, Jamie, was a from a very young age. I'm not sure how old he would have been, but, you know, there was nothing that he couldn't build when he was a teenager and his experiences on horses and stockmanship was amazing. So, you know, it was great move. So I did a couple of years with Jamie and then um, learn a lot and then moved on to uh, Cherubin Station for a bloke called Jimmy Modder and Joy, which I was only there for 12 months, but through the 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 great help from Jamie and Peter Gray and everybody I worked there, I ended up running a camp time I was 21 for um, Jim Modder. Tell me, before we go on to Cherubin and I guess the places you were after that, I want to hear a little bit more about Fairfield because you spent three years there. Yeah. Um, there was a mostly Indigenous stock camp and I know there was a gentleman that went by the name of Wallace yeah. that you learn a lot from. So, I guess tell me a bit about your time at Fairfield. Um, oh, Fairfield was like a lot of good Aboriginal people, but we uh, young blokes that we're all still, you know, a lot of us are still um, in touch. But when I went to Leopold, they had a lead man there called Wallace. Wallace rigged me. For, he was from over the ranges, Tablelands. And, um, oh, look, the, you know, some of the boys are gone now and, and the whole lot of them, seeing that I was coming up and very keen on throwing and I was keen to do everything. And, look, because I was the most unexperienced stockman at the time, a lot of the experienced ones didn't al- always have the time. You know, it was a lot of... A lot of wild cattle back then and it was a lot of broncoing and so old Wallace and some of the other high up boys would pull me aside and show me how to cut a calf or get me off and throw a big Mickey ball or, you know, they always showed me the little areas where to pull up and how to get it better and I remember the first time I've ever stepped off to throw something, I was flat galloping. This old Aboriginal boy come up to me and he said, buddy, you've been got to slow down because you're going too fast. You know, like they were watching and trying to help, you know, like any minute they could get to talk to me, they, they'd explain where I was going wrong. And I, I felt back then, holy shit, this is so cool. You know, like we had 22 stockmen and back then you could listen to any of them because they knew what they were talking about. You know, that was the amazing part. 22 people on horseback. That's a huge number. That's like a little army. It was a little army, and um, especially back then, like, the experience they had and the cattle that we could block. And, look, we had an old plane pilot at the time, Dave Rundle, and, you know, Dave would bring cattle out in his aeroplane with bits of stick hanging off his bloody wheel and shit because he got so low, and and um, it was just the experience of it all. And, you know, we didn't have water bottles, we didn't have yetis or anything back then we had an old mule with a canteen on it you know so you had to wait from three o'clock to one thirty or 12 o'clock before you got a drink and it was always that hot you could nearly put a tea bag in it so and i remember i thought i was going to die and wallace had a young boy called dennis and dennis sort of wheeled me under his arm a bit and i think he was only 14 at the time and he'd sneak me down to the river if we were going close to one and dig a soak and let me have a cold drink and now, I don't think I ever told any of the other boys what was going on, but you know, like you know, starving. Like there was nothing of us back then, anyway. So you, they teach you to eat gum nuts and a lot of the berries and you know, a bit of fruit that you'd find growing in the bush. So you know, those sort of memories you, is unbelievable. And still today, I show other people what I got shown. You know, it's sort of 
quite amazing what's out there if you didn't know, you know. It's just an incredible experience, I guess. Mm. Like how lucky, again, and I'm glad to hear that you went from that first really crappy experience that it sounded like it just kept getting better and better, that you got on a good run after then. Like it would have been so easy after that first experience just to head home or go somewhere else and be like, bugger this place, but you stuck around and it did get better. Oh, look, 100%. If if Jack didn't organise what he organised, I probably would have went home. I nearly went home anyway and then lucky Jack's daughter come to get the mail and she thought, oh, shit, I'll just let Dad know. And then Jack said, let's put him on. And without that, I most likely would have went home and then it got better. Jack seen that he wasn't going to stay around Flora Valley long, um, but he didn't want to walk off without us guys all having something in the future to go to. And, um, yeah, so my big thanks went out to him, you know, like without Jack, I probably would have went home or, yeah, I don't know where I would have ended up or what I would have done, but, you know, so very appreciated what him and Susie and Lionel and Lionel's amazing guy as well, like Jack's daughter's partner. He was a, a really great bloke to work for, very understanding, um, yeah, he's seen, you know, he's seen the future of all of us as well. So, and was it after you left Fairfield? Was it Cherubin? Were you there for four years? Is that right? Four years. I went to Cherubin, and um, I had my first family at Cherubin. I um, spent seventeen years as their stepfather, bringing them up, and still dearly today, um, Damien, the boy, is one of my best mates. You know, we sort of. And he's done real well in life and he's just a typical camp. I think whatever they do in life, they'll always do something proper good. So yeah, that was quite amazing. And, and, um, yeah, we look, my first job at Cherubin, we, I ended up in a relationship for 17 years and had two, uh, three more kids. We had two girls and a boy. And, um, yeah, we went from Cherubin to Jubilee. Um, moving ourselves around the Kimleys running, running stock camps. But look, Cherubin was an amazing place. Um, and experience as well. I come from Leopold. Um, great stockman. You know, a lot of Aboriginal boys were great stockmen. And I went to Cherubin where they gave me all trainees to work. I should be bally or grey or whatever. Cause it was, you know, it really did my head in like, First year doing something with a 14 camp crew that were young stockmen from Perth, what sort of was up there to learn everything from me. So, and what we had to do was, um, we worked a bullet camp. So they got TB tested and I'd be walking out and tailing out six, seven hundred bullocks at a time and then have to put them back in the yard every day. And, ah, oh, geez, I don't know how I did it. But anyway, we got through that and I spent four years with Jim. Um, yeah, bullet camp and then running the main camp and then, and stuff like that. But it was sort of went from a, an amazing, um, stockman skills of all the ringers at Cherubin to somewhere where I had to put everything that those guys taught me into all these young guys. And that's when the Kimley started changing. I think, you know, you could see, um, natural people weren't there. Like you had to teach, teach them what, you know, everything, more or less everything. So, yeah, I don't know. We got through. I don't know how. 
Yeah, that's a quite a change going mm. from, I guess, having everyone fairly competent, pretty handy, and and then next minute you're the handiest of them all, and you're trying to. I mean that that's a whole different skill set required to be to go from where you were working in the camp and just doing a job, but then being in charge. But being in charge of people that know what they're doing, that's one thing. Being in charge of people that have no idea what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. You were, you're a fairly young, you know, you would have been early, mid-20s at that time. Um, yeah. Look, and you're used to trying to um, – I was a sort of matey person, you know, like your, your workers were your mates and, and you you know, you had your favourites probably. and But then you had older people, ringers and, and that, trying to tell you that now you're a headstockman. None of them are your friends. They're all your enemies. And it was, felt like I was in the army and I'm going, oh, shit. And back then there was a lot of bull throwing and a lot of, you know, you'd get off to anything out in the middle of nowhere. And I kept thinking, well, I don't want any of these buggers to be my enemies. You know, if you get get out on the ground and a bull turn you upside down, I'd rather them be my friend, you know, and they might help me. And I thought if I yell at them and scream at them and, and make out on their, they're my enemies – I don't know why that ever went through my mind, but that's how I took on, on my patrol of my men that, like, shit, I respect everything they do for me. Look, don't get me wrong, I had me ups and downs and yelling and screaming and to get something through to somebody, but at the end of the day, you always let them know if they did a good job or where they didn't do it good, you know. So, And I've carried that out, like, through everything I've done, I try to, let my workers 100% know that I appreciated everything they do because I can't do it all on my own, you know. So, yeah, so it sort of was a massive experience, you know, trying to put your foot in that area, trying to get a name for what you're doing, and you've got people saying, no, oh, yeah, you're doing it the wrong way, so they're trying to run it for you, but that's where your mind starts setting in and going, no, nope, I'm going to do it this way. And anyway, it sort of worked for what I did. So, yeah, I actually really enjoyed running the camp then, so... What was the Kimberley like in the 1980s? I mean, from my perspective, I guess looking at movie and TV and music, you know, there's there's hideous makeup and big hair and and fluoro coloured outfits. Were you out in the stock camp wearing one of those parachute jackets? You know, those those matching kind of jackets and pants people used to wear made out of like parachute material. And I mean, there was some pretty questionable fashion there. Is that what it was like up in the Kimberley too? No, like I think a lot of people had moleskins and that, but I, you know, when I finally got over here, I think there was, you know, just the blue old denim jeans and, and, um, yeah, just normal shirts. I think it was, you know, I know we had a cupboard probably for the radios with a few fancy colours, but, um, yeah, no, it was, yeah, it was like pretty normal, I think. We all sort of just had the, we never had many clothes. I know that because we uh, put a lot of saddle grease on our saddles and because it was all about riding, you, you know, every day you spent time in a saddle and, um, yeah, look, your jeans didn't last long through the saddle grease and the sweat and horse sweat and everything on your jeans. And, um, look, when I first got over here to Leopold, it was a lot of packing and broncoing. So you're only allowed the jeans you wore and a shirt and one spare pair and a, and a, um, a shirt for your swag, which that rolled up to be your pillow because you weren't allowed a mattress or anything like that. So there was a lot of very uncomfortable nights and, and, um, sleeping. And, um, and when you got the cherubin, you had no Toyota. All we had was an old tractor and everything was still done with horses and to move around. And, and Jim Motter, the homestead was only three K away, but you weren't allowed at it. You had to camp in the swag under a bow shed. So, 
I think they were the hardest times, you know, like trying to keep up with washing, which was a flower drum and, and, um, yeah, like there was no such thing as town or anything like that. But you know what? It was, it was beautiful because we had no phones to hear the sad news or the bad news. You just got on with every day by day. You know what I mean? And, and you had your own stories with each other that, that I think kept the camps going, you know, that, um, you didn't hear all the bullshit and you didn't have the politics now and you didn't have the McLeod's daughters. It was like what was there is what you had. And if it, if something was going wrong, you sorted it out and the day went, you know, like, yeah, I don't know. It was really beautiful experience. And and when you did get close to the station working your horses, the, the my, my fondest um, memories was the communities. They had a lot of camps close and, to have all them little Aboriginal kids come and sit around your yard on the top rail all happy and smiley and, you know, like, they were my finest memories where now I think I look at it, everyone looks sad or or down in the dumps. But, yeah, back then it was great. And, we, you know, it was just an amazing experience working with Aboriginal people. We all worked together. We're all... A, you know, they might have had their camp and we had ours, but the laughter they did told us guys how much fun they were having, you know. So they weren't in town, they were out bush, what they loved doing. You ended up at a place a little – so, I mean, you've been to plenty of places, but you ended up at one called Camballan for 10 years. Yeah. Can you explain a bit about – like, I've never actually been out there, but I know – I don't know, is it different? It's a part of Liveringa or was it run separate to Liveringa? How does that all kind of fit in? Um, well, Camp Allen Homestead area, like the township was a farming. It, they had farmers there, um, in the eighties and I'm not sure how long they ran for. Um, so was there more, more than one farmer? Yeah. Oh, like, yeah. Had, like, so they, out there. yeah, they had like, that was a farming area. So Camp Allen oh. Township, one stage had a pub, a pool, oh. a picture theatre and it, it had a massive lot of farming. The, the Americans, um, yeah, they had a massive show there, and then um, Liveringa and Camp Allen, like at back of Liveringa, which they call Liveringa now, was where the ringers stayed, and then they did all the mustering side of it. And from what I heard, the farmers never really got on with the ringers. It was sort of like a bit of a challenge all the time. And uh, but in my time of running the camp for old Bruce Gray for ten years, there was um, I lived in Camp Allen Township, which had slowed right down and there was no pub and no pool by then and just a handful of people lived in Camp Allen. But all the workers were at Incarta, what we called Incarta. So, um, yeah, so that was quite amazing. And, yeah, there was – but all the farming area is still there and which today they are starting to grow hay and, yeah, and stuff there yeah. now. So I didn't realise. I thought I'd heard of Camp Allen before and like that area and I knew there had been some farming out there, but I thought maybe it was just one farmer or it was a part of the station. I didn't realise that there were different farmers out there and yeah. people must have gone out and tried to have a crack and for some reason it just didn't take off or Um yeah, look and even in my time of running the camp there that um some people come over and try to grow cotton and a few other people tried to do other things and yeah, I don't know it what happened. It never got off the ground but what they're doing out there now, I think some of the amazing crops of hay I've ever seen. And, um, I think they've got one bloke there now they call Jake and Jake's doing an amazing job for, you know, what I've seen him do out there. And I think they've got about, I don't know, maybe I'm 
imagining but five or six pivots going there now and um yeah it's incredible and like because a lot of Campbellan is um it looks massive but a lot of it's in flood too so you get this time of year now and a lot of your flats are underwater and so it takes up a lot of the cattle country you know what i mean so where you got cattle could be fattening now you've got to move them higher and higher to get them away from all that floodlands you mm. know so and so when so when you say you ran the camp at Campbellan, so was that separate to Liveringa? Um, different places back then, like no, Liveringa, like Campbellan's always just been its own little township. Yeah. So we call like they call the Campbellan Farms or whatever. So sort of Liveringa is Liveringa back when I run the camp. Also joined with Narama. Mm-hmm. We we actually bought Narama Wiles there, and so I'd run the camp at Campbellan. We'd do most of the cattle, then we'd all rush over and do Narama. Then I'd come back and do the um, stud paddock at Campbellan. So our year was flat out. Like I had a diary from the manager then for three months straight, like what we had to do day by day. And we had to keep it in that line. You know, if you missed a half a day here, you had to catch up on a, on the next day. So um, it was full on and... We never got much for it, but the experience and, uh, the manager alone was a, a, a great, a great manager, old Bruce Gray, and he, he, he could sort of make any station work. He knew, he knew all the ins and outs and, um, very good old horseman as well. That was Peter Gray's brother. And so I was very lucky in my life to work for two great managers, you know, to, to, to sort of, teach you what you, you, we all know today so now you can't stay somewhere for 10 years without there being a few stories to take with you when you leave mm. i bet there's a few stories from your time at Campbellan. many stories um most of them all come from the river of young guys so keen and want to learn the fullest and at one stage there i had the same boys for probably seven years so they were all experienced. They were all great. And the challenges were, was we didn't ever want to see a bull get away. And, you know, which is a lot of them. And so we teach young guys how to throw. And there's been many occasions where they'd forgot that the bull tied up could still run. So there were a lot of scary moments where you've seen guys standing there, not knowing what was about to happen to them when bulls were coming at them flat and straps and, get to them and lift them upside down and throw them in the air and blow snot all over them. When you get there to lead the bull off them, you think this guy's got to have holes all through him and you check him out and he's got snot all over him. He stands up and the first thing he says is, shit, that was good fun. <laughs> Little we knew, he knew it just took 10 years off our life and <laughs> this went on and on quite a few times, you know, and, uh, oh, geez, other stories, I was pretty crazy to steer wrestle off. Helicopters, I shouldn't be staying yeah, this and I would l- I'm not mentioning no um pilots' names or what choppers, but they'd fly into me camp like into the coaches and get in, get in and I'd stand on the skids at one stage and we'd come up to this cow heading for the river and as I went to jump off the skid she ducked back under the helicopter. So I got ducked in and cuddled the seat passenger side went up about 70 meters in a big turn and we come back down and got level with the cow again and i leapt out and steer wrestled her and tied her up and when i got back to the helicopter the pilots crunched over his uh controls with a real bad look on his face and i thought shit wonder what i'd done wrong 
And he looked at me and shook his head and said, don't do that again. And I said, why, what happened? And he grabbed the seat and just pulled it out. It was only held in by Velcro. And I just went 70 metres up, nearly upside down, hanging on to this thing. So, oh, look, you live and learn. But I just just need to say for anyone listening at home, do not try this at home. Yeah. I think it is by the grace of God that you are alive. Yeah. And nobody oh. should jump out of a helicopter to catch a bull or a cow or anything. Yeah. No, <laughs> imagine if, imagine, like, there's a lot of timing in that when you jump off a horse to rest, like, to steer wrestle or wrestle something. Coming out of a helicopter, like, with the speed it would be going and being at a bit more height or something, like, if you got that wrong, like, surely you just, Got burst into little pieces. Oh, yeah, but it's sort of oh, look, you do it once and then you pick up better knacks. And I've done it quite a few times. And I had one guy, we he, we chased a big pig and I got out and stepped out to throw this big pig. But um, look, once I got the pig down, then I had to sort of get back to the helicopter before the pig got me. That was sort of a bit of an experience as well because uh, a pig will come all the way. And they mightn't be as big as a bull, but I tell you what, they make your bloody heart pump too. I've only done that once, but it was a bloody big pig. And I remember this helicopter pilot, look at this, look at this. And we chased him down and I climbed out and I thought, I'm go- I've got him, I've got him. And, and also to do this, you've got to make sure the pilot knows when you jump because your weight on one side of the helicopter will throw the helicopter into the ground. Mm-hmm. So you just can't jump out. You know, you've got to make sure the pilot knows exactly what you're doing and when you're going to do it to take that that pressure off on the on the side you jump too so yeah it's just not rolling along jumping so you both sort of got to um think about it and time it so just to not end up with a blade or a tail rotor through you somehow or i'm the kind of person that if i go to do a cartwheel or a handstand at the last minute especially as a kid i would kind of hesitate at the last minute so instead of doing you know committing to it and doing a full one and end up just doing these little bits where i kind of like half like just do yeah. these little silly yeah. ones. Yeah. So could you imagine me trying to jump out of a helicopter? Like the hesitation, I'd kill us all. And, yeah. I'd, and, I, and I'd probably go like 10 seconds too late and eat yeah. dirt. And It's like um, everything. Like when you – like someone thinks you're crazy and it doesn't happen much up here now because there's not as much horsework, but we just dreamt of throwing bulls, you know, to step off a horse. Why, why step off a horse to – throw a 800 kilo animal or a 600 hit kilo animal and it's all knack and um back then you you threw them to take your coaches to them and pick them up and you keep going and and um and look back in those days a lot of the animals that what we threw probably weren't worth a lot of money like a big clean skin bull where now they'll probably pull a thousand dollars or fourteen hundred dollars but it broke your um Boredness, like not boredness, but if you just done the same thing every day, you know. So teaching boys, well, you couldn't teach them. You just told them or showed them and the rest was up to them. It's like hesitation. You made sure when you were going to do it, you couldn't hesitate. You had to do it. You know, if that's what you wanted to do, you had to do it. If you hesitated, you got hurt because they give you no second chance. If you, you know, stepped off and hesitated and thought about it and he turned around, well, then you're a, a target to two sets of horns, you know what I mean? So the the idea was an old Aboriginal bloke said to me, you know, like, if you're chasing a bull, boy, 
You don't look at his bloody horns. You look at his tail. Make sure his brush is good so you can get a good wrap. And once you've got all the wrap, even if you fall over, if you hold your hand shut, you shouldn't undo. It's like a knot in your hand, you know. And he'll pick you up and sling you around maybe if you do. But that's, yeah, I don't know. That was all the fun, I think. Oh, my gosh. And, yeah. It's always been on my to-do list. I feel like I'm probably a bit old and not nimble enough to do that now, but maybe I'll come out and you can throw me how to, you'll be right. how to throw a ball. I'm sure you'll be right. I'm sure you'll teach me just fine, right? <laughs> <laughs> Is that a promise? Yeah. Oh, I've got look, this in recording now. Yeah. Look, I had a guy called Tony Churchill years ago and we were at – actually, I was – Still at Cherubin and he wanted to throw and I remember I stepped off to grab the horse, um, bull and I grabbed him and I, he was a young guy and I brought him in and handed him the, handed him the tail and stepped out to throw him. And as I stepped out to get in the lead of the bull, Tony slipped over and the bull come around to horn him. And for some reason I got in between the bull and the, and the guy and picked him back up and put him back on the tail and it all happened smoothly and, and uh, believe it or not, only a month ago, this guy rang and sent me a message later on about the story of me picking him up and putting him back on the tail, you know. So, And look, that would have been 35 years ago. So no one ever forgets the first experience of the first bull. And I still remember mine. It was near Tunnel Creek and and uh, I stepped off with Jamie Gray, Connie's dad, and, and an Aboriginal guy, and um, which has just passed away not long ago, Kimberly Marlowe. And, um, holy shit, I just hesitated. I fell over in front of it. It sort of clipped me bum cheeks a couple of times. And, and when I did throw it, I'm sure when I got back to the mob, I had no buttons on my shirt because my chest was pumped that much, you know, like it was the biggest, <laughs> biggest adrenaline rush I've ever had in my life. And it's something you'll never forget. Like it's amazing. So. That is, uh, I just love that. I had no buttons left on my shirt because my chest was pumping. <laughs> yeah. Oh, maybe God. it was a short, uh, tight shirt. Like, I don't know. I was, I was like, or maybe I'm surprised that your hat fit on your head then if it was getting that oh, big. Yeah. Like, nah. I think the head shrunk and everything yeah. else fell in the chest. So. <laughs> um, tell me about the, there was a bit of a character you had out at camp as well, your, your cook. And he had a bit of an interesting experience towards oh, the end of his time there. We did. We, um, Old Bruce was a pretty serious manager and you knew when he was annoyed, he always blew into the microphone and uh, it was like he had a red-back spider bit him on the lips once. And Anyway, I had this camp cook for about four years called Jack White, great old guy, typical typical camp cook. If um, you took a cookie or something like that, well, he'd just say cookies are off for 2000 or 95 or 96, whatever, and this one day we're mushing away on the river and this Toyota pulls up and um, I said, Jack, you can't park there, mate. There's a bloody chopper bringing cattle in. He said, I don't care. Step off your horse and read me lotto numbers. And I said, what are you talking about? So I got off the horse and read the lotto numbers. He said, there you go. I've just won half a million. He said, so there's your tucker and I'm out of here. And at the same time, Jack's on the two-way. Who's that in the bloody road? I said, oh, Jack, um, old Jack, tell him to get out of the road. Cattle coming in. I said, he can't. He just won lotto. I don't care. Tell him to get out of the bloody road. Anyway, old Jack left the dinner camp under a tree and headed to Camp Allen. And before he left, he said, and by the way, you better come and get your car because I ain't bloody bringing it back. I'm finished. And I said, holy shit, really? And anyway... Two weeks later, old Jack turns up with the lot winnings of the lotto and um, 
gave my whole stock camp at the time $45,000. He gave me 20000 to help me out and gave the stock camp 3000 each and away he went. He put a bit of a party on and quite amazing. And, and how he heard about his lotto, he had this little scratchy wireless going in the stock camp in the old caravan we had while he was making bread and that's how he how he found out he won lotto. He just listened to the lotto numbers get called out over this old scratchy um Wallace, so, so and did, um, yeah, never got to see old Jack ever again. That was his uh, thank you, and he was just like, "See you, bye, see you, bye." I'm not coming I'm back. I'm out so. of here. Yeah, it's amazing, and um, and so generous as well. Like I'm thinking, so this would have been the the 90s. Yeah. So I mean, if you gave me 20 grand today, I'd be pretty happy. But 20 grand in the 90s, I'm not sure exactly what that would equate to with inflation, but that's still a fair chunk of money. Oh, I think we're um back then our wages was um maybe five hundred or uh I think they jumped up to about five hundred a week. So So that was yeah, almost a year's wage then. Probably a year's wages for me, yeah. Holy yeah. wow. Yeah. And what a couple you- of months wages each for the boys, you know. What did you do with the money? Actually, I bought a house at Campbellan. Oh, really? Yeah, I just got a loan to buy a house. It was at the moment at that time a house was worth twelve thousand. And I went and borrowed the money and, uh, I went back in, um, three months later and said, I want to pay my loan off. And I paid the loan off with my winnings. Oh my God. $12,000 for a present. house. That's yeah. a, do you still have that house today? No, I had it for 10 years and I sold it for 40,000. And then the guy had that for about 12 years and sold it for 250,000. <laughs> yeah. So he did well. Wow. But still, yeah. I'd love to buy a house for $12,000. And they were great houses. And you know, my, probably my worst regret I've ever done in my life. I, cause it was a gift from Jack at the end of the day, I should never sold it. It was owned by and it was a home. It was a great home. It was in a great area. And yeah, it's probably my worst regret. And I told the old guy. That I sold it to. The worst thing I ever did was sell you that house. And he said, I reckon it was the best thing you ever did selling it to me. So, oh, you sold it to Jack Clay? No, I oh, sold it just- to a, a, um, an old guy called Murray Scott, which oh, was okay. a, a, an old battler. And, you know, he did well. He, um, he drove graders and boars and yeah. he was a, well, he he was a great well, old bushman he- as well. And it, it got him through and it sold it for five he sold times. It it's- for a bit of money to help his retirement, yeah. you know. So it, it worked out great for him too. Well, so. actually, so if you bought it for 12 grand. And sold it for forty. What's that? One, two, three. So it's like four and a bit times, and then forty grand, two hundred and fifty. That's about five times. So yeah, it's gone up almost four to four to five times its value each time it's sold. Like, yeah, yeah. Wow. But who would ever think a house could get down to ten grand or twelve grand? I know. I know. So I'm very four jealous. Four bedroom homes too. Like you know, you incredible. Oh my gosh. Oh, you'd be laughing if you still had it today. Sometimes I wish I was alive 50 years ago so I could just buy a house and still own it today. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, no. But anyway, that would make you an old person. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So I know after Cambalan, so yeah, 10 years, a long time to spend somewhere, which is quite, I think, a feather in your hat, really. That's, yeah. a, that's a big commitment. Um, and I know you went back to a few other places, but it was not long after that that you ended up out on your own yeah, contracting, contracting, which is what you've been doing for the last 21 years, yeah, 21 odd years, and that's yeah. what you're known for. That's what you guys, you and your wife, um, Teeny, wrote blogs for us in the when Central Station first started in 2013. You were yeah. one of the very first people that put a story on our website, which is why it's so nice to have you on the podcast now. Yeah. I only met you last night for the first time after 10 years of, of reading your stories. But tell me, I guess, about that first ex- that first opportunity, I guess, not just an experience, but an opportunity to go contracting and go out on your own. 
Yeah, unless, I suppose I've got to thank um, an old guy called Frank McKelry at the time. I did a little bit of one year's work for him and and um, Frank said, look, I want you to have a bit of a start in life. I want you to muster Glenroy. So I bought in another contractor with me, Robert Gray, and, yeah, away we went. We shared a contract together for a year up at Mount House and did all the Glenroy, which was my first experience of mustering. And then from there on, it just, um, we did one year together and then we sort of, of, you know, it was only for that one year and we split up and we're, um, he's still contracting and I sort of went from mustering to fencing the yard building. So my, my business turned in from just mustering to, to, um, yeah, everything, anything on the land that they want me to do, I'll try to put it together for them, you know. So, and, um, Oh, look, back then it was so good too. If you wanted men, you only had to put a sign up for a while and you had a lot of men. And and like 21 years ago seems not that long ago, but now you put a sign up and you're struggling to get people. Um, these days I haven't been doing as much mustering, but yard building fencing for a company called Capco. Um, Shane Dunn's the manager of Morita and he's keeping me in line, you know, with a lot of work now. But, oh, look. When I first started, though, the mastering and the bull catching, and it was an amazing experience. But for a person from leaving home, as the story started, where I couldn't read or write, and I think that was my biggest challenges of a contract. When you're on your own, there's a lot of homework. You know, you you don't just put master and put money in the bank. You've got your you know taxes and your all this other stuff to come and go and. That was way out of my league, you know. That was something that, like, I had to really look into and get someone to help me out, and that's why I've always had a, a good bookkeeper to help me out. And, um, yeah, like a lot of people go, shit, I'm going to go contracting and I'm going to do this and that. And because we've got a short window, you know, like January, February, March, April is our wet seasons, which most times we can't do much but fix gear and spend the money on what we just earned through the year to get everything ready for the following year and or the next year, you know what I mean? And it's sort of like, holy shit, is it worth doing? But your own boss and the country we get to see up the Gibb River Road and on stations where we work is something that someone can live a lifetime and not ever get to see it. Um, amazing country, especially when you get up around Drysdale, Dungan Theatre and, you know, out the back of some of these places is just unbelievable. That's the country I've always wanted to get to is to go right up. And I always look at the pastoral map and just yeah. right up the top there, like Carston River. Yeah. Right up there. It just feels like it's no man's land. Like yeah. there's just hardly anyone up there. And It's so remote. And this probably sounds like a bit of a bullshit story, but I remember pulling up for lunch once in the, right out the back of Dungan and, um, I said to the guys for a joke, what do you feel like, a bit of fish or something, you know, and I went down with a, a fishing line with no bait and I put a bit of plastic bag on it and threw it out and bang, I got two black brim, like beautiful big black brim. And I'm in the middle of nowhere and my partner and my worker standing up on the bank watching me and as I gutted the fish and stood up, this crocodile flew out of the water straight between my legs and did a big snap trying to pull the fish out of my hand and I looked down between my legs and there's this five-foot crocodile sitting between my legs looking back at me like, holy shit, I just missed my feed, you know, which I did a big jump over him and, and shit myself. But the, the guys up on the bank watched it all unfold in front of me. And 
The reason I didn't see the crocodile sitting there watching what I was doing was because the ripples on the water took the shadow and everything away. But that's the sort of stuff you get to see out in the middle of nowhere or get to happen, you know. So please tell me that was a freshwater crocodile. Yeah, just a oh, little fresh. Oh, thank God. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, a little fresh. Oh, my so. God. But he was pretty hungry. I don't know why. There was fish in the water, but all the crocs up there. And he just wanted someone else yeah. to prepare it for he, him. He just wanted someone else to catch it and gut it and oh do the gosh. rest. So that was the sort of stories what no one gets to see or whatever, you know. So and and look, don't get me wrong, it's you're sort of stuck right out in the middle of nowhere and you're trying to um make a living and you've got to get you know, your cattle back safe and without damages and so you don't want breakdowns and if you do you work through the night trying to fix it and look, anything could unfold, you know, so it's a wild job, really. And I use that word a lot. And I often think, oh, I'm using it when I shouldn't use it. But I, I think there's no other word to use but wild. Like you're out in the wild, you're with wild cattle, other wild animals. In rugged country. In wild country. Yeah, like wild it's country, everything yeah. is just wild. Um, I know when you and Teeny wrote stories for our website, one of them was called like, I think it was like 70 kilometers an hour and 80, 180 beats per minute, which is kind of like the speed of your car and the speed of your heart. Like it's yeah. just everything's just full ball. Yeah. Tell me. And I know, and so you've done a lot in the Kimberley. You've also had some times over in the territory, but I would say that my understanding is that most of it's been in the Kimberley. I guess tell me what it's like. Well, actually let's have the story of how you met Teeny. Let's have that because oh. you guys are a team and were and and went out. I mean, I, it's hard work you do, but to find a yeah a, a future wife. Well, and- it's, it's funny. I was I was down at Sandfire putting on um, a couple hundred kilometres of fencing up at Pardell along the edge of the road and oh, in and off the road for um, Graham Rogers, and we stayed. Just in the bush, not far from the Pardu radius, because there's a lot of artesian water there, so it's very shallow. It's um, plenty of flow, and 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 we'd gone and gone. I had um, three um, Aboriginal guys from Derby and a Kiwi boy, and we had the day off, so we went fishing. and And that morning, as we we're getting a bit of ice and a bit of bait and everything, I seen a little green four-wheel drive parked up at the roadhouse at Pardu. Anyway, we went fishing and come back and. The, the little car was still there and funny thing, I bought some tobacco for the boys that morning and I paid for it but forgot to pick it up. Anyway, I said to the boys, look, we had a you know, big mob of fish there. Can you just cook the fish? I'll go up and get your tobacco. And as I'm getting tobacco, I thought, bugger, I might have one beer. And as I'm having a beer, a phone rang to say that the RAC was there to talk to the two German backpackers that was broken down. And I thought, oh, yeah, and Tino walked in. I thought, holy shit, I could fix her car for sure. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I listened to the story a bit, and as she's still talking, I went outside and told her friend to pull the hood, and here I am checking the motor over on this car, seeing if I could fix it. Anyway, it was pretty obvious that the motor was buggered, and I got it running good enough for him to get back to Port Hedland, but at the same time I invited them down for a feed of fish and rice that the boys were cooking in the camp. Anyway, that's how we first met and, uh, yes, sat around the campfire telling stories all night and next day when they left, I slipped her a phone number and said, give us a call, you know, because I knew my girlfriend was leaving in two months and, and, uh, yeah, this day she rang me, I just uh, got a mustering job to do for Ashburton in the, the Pilbara and I told her what we're doing and she said, please count me in and 
Yeah, we've been together ever since, 15 years ago. That is one hell of a story. I love that. (laughs) She walked in, I was like, I could fix her car for sure. (laughs) Yeah, so, and and little she knew then, mechanical minded, I'm not very good at all. But anyway, I probably did more damage to the car to keep them back, but I didn't. I tried to fix it. And so, obviously, I'm going to have to have Teeny on the podcast at some, at some point as well, but, just quickly, what's her background? Like, what was she just tour- touristing around Australia? Was she from a kind of rural background in Germany? Uh, or no, she just um, finished studying and yeah, doing uni and whatever in Germany. And yeah, she just started traveling around Australia for twelve months. And her friend came over for six months, so they were traveling together. And I think they had just spent time in um, Adelaide or Melbourne. In Melbourne, she was. Um, actually bloody furniture moving for people. So she'd clean out houses and move their furniture to the next house and all that for a big furniture moving company. And, um, and look, I think she just, I think they fell in love with Australia and um, hadn't rode horses very much at all but loved the sound of the horse background. And, um, and I think when they come down to our camp and the stories they heard and a big feed of fish and rice and I got the Aboriginal boys to light fires with sticks, like I got them to turn it full on for them and, <laughs> and they left shaking their head going, oh my God, that is one of the best bush camps we've ever moved, uh, seen, you know. So, um, look, and then boys, they turned it on, but you know, old Paddy, he had a fire going in no time with a bit of kangaroo poo and a couple of sticks and, and stuff like that. And I think they just went away shaking their head going, Oh my God, you know, what an experience. So yeah. And look, um, Tino come back and that's sort of, yeah, straight into a camp full of horses and men and mustering and we went. So it's great. Now it's one thing for her to come out mustering with you in the pill road. You're, you're on the same station for a while. Was that a, well, oh, we did a year's contract there. Yeah, well, yeah. Four months. So that it was. Yeah, so that's um, that's one place that's fairly steady. It's a beautiful part of the world. Yeah. Um, gets hot, but still, you get nice, cool winters down in the Pilbara. Mm. What about when you water back up to the Kimberley? Because I know when you guys first started riding for us, you were like full time kind of bull catching, contracting, uh, living out of a caravan or yeah. God knows what, and yeah. just always on the move. And that's yeah, a very well, different lifestyle. Yeah, actually. Once we first did the forecast, we were with Hayden and Jane Sales at Yugawalla and Booker and Hayden and Jane gave us heaps of work and and by then though we were sort of ready for mushrooming again, but way before that I bought it back up here and we were putting up like for Yarri a couple of hundred kilometres of fencing and and then um we come back to the Kimleys actually and we went and mustered El Questro on contract for Lindsay Ward. Um it was beautiful. It was great, you know, like um, but different. It was sort of work for different people and harder and, um, yeah, look, and I think we just like both of that sort of like one minute we're at El Cuestro, next minute we're back somewhere out of Derby and next minute we're sort of up the Gibb River Road catching for Kurt Hammer. We're always traveling, you know, we're always seeing country that what tourists come over to see, but not many get to see what we see sort of thing. I think that's what she fell in love with, like the country we travelled and the things she seen and she was learning. She was a great learner. She was a great little stockman and, look, she got, you know, pelted off a few horses. She broke a few bones. She, um, but she still kept getting up and getting on and, and doing it. And like, and I'd have her in the bull catcher. She could strap a bull, you know, like quick as any person I've had with me and knock the horn off. And, you know, she did everything like everybody else. And, 
I think that's how we treated each other. We treated each other as great workmates and as, as you know, so we had to because we had no one else there, just me and her or one or two other guys or, you know, up to five blokes. And, um, yeah, we just worked good as a team, you know, so. that's It's just got to be, there's so many different things there that have got to be make or break for a relationship, like yeah. living remote, living, you know, like not the most comfortable life, um, yeah. hard, hard work tough environment, working with your partner and yeah. living with them 24-7, You're not just working with your partner but your partner being your boss. Like I feel like that whole – it's like a big pressure cooker and it would have been make or break. And like you said, 15 years later. Is yeah. it 15 years now? Yeah, 15 years now. Yeah, and, and, and so look, it's definitely been a make, not yeah, a break. But yeah, and don't get me wrong, like a caravan didn't come along straight away. A caravan didn't come along until she had a baby. And uh we just swagged it. We always just swagged it. And if the mozzies were bad, we put up a mozzie dome and um yeah, well we threw the swag in the back of a ute. We never there was no comfort. I cooked everything on a camp oven or off an open fire. I had um I tried to get a fridge or a freezer there so we did have a bit of something cold or to keep fresh stuff. But um look and I remember when we were working for Yuga Walla she was um eight months pregnant and still sitting in the bull catcher and I and I had Jane Sales always saying, Lockie, it's a long way from town. You've got to get her in soon. She's just about to have a baby. Anyway, you'd, a bull would buck out and you'd say, come on, mate, get out, get out. So I can chase the bull and look at you like a little puppy dog, like don't let me out. I don't want to chase the bull. Come on, come on. Anyway, so right up until she was eight months pregnant, she was still sitting in the bull catcher every now and again chasing bulls. So Mad, yeah. absolute madness. Yeah. That, yeah. So I'm trying to decide now if I I think we've kind of gone. There's two segues here. Do I ask you about um, having babies at camp and out ball catching, or you also mentioned some injuries before? Might go down the injury path, and we'll come back to to actually no. Let's go and talk about having having kids out at camp, and and like you said, while we're on this this um, line of thinking about Teeny being pregnant out at camp, and you've had two beautiful little girls now. Yeah. Um, and you guys still contract. So what's it been like? I mean, how did that change your life, having kids out in this, you know, like when you had other children, you're kind of in one place for a period of time, but these mm. last 15 years you're just all over the show, always yeah. moving. You know, like my first children was a big experience. You know, they work like men from a little kid, you know, and I, I remember sometimes that's all I had in my camp was my kids helping me muster and, and you know, and, their little bodies are still hurting some, especially my step boy and that, like through force falls and everything he had, young Damien. And, and oh, look, I take my hat off to my older kids because they, um, worked damn hard in a stock camp and they got nothing for it. I thought it was experience, but now they're old enough. They knew not to take that road of what dad did. Um, they probably got too much of it when they were little. So these little ones is like, I'm not pressuring them to do what they did because um, at the end they didn't like it, you know. So these little ones are a bit special. Oh, not special, but they are special. <laughs> but they're – look, I got older and I've got softer and um, they don't spend as much time in the camp, which, you know, I go months now without seeing them. And, um, and Tino sort of wants to bring them up around other kids and give them that life of um, – this, you know, try to get them into school as much as we can. Like we bought them, we bought a caravan for it all to happen. And look, they still come out to camp. They actually love it, but they get a little bored, you know, but they still love it. They come out and it can be their best weekend ever. 
or they'd rather be back in, in, in Derby. But look, they still love the lifestyle. And, you know, especially if I can spend a half a day with them when they do come out, take them swimming or fishing or, or something like that. Like, and slowly I know that one day they're going to say, we want to go and stay in the stock camp, you know. So, um, already they're pressuring me for a horse. They really want a horse. So we're, when my other kids were little, they had no option. They had to get on a horse. You know what I mean? So I've taken that drive away. I just want these ones to grow up to an experience they want to do as well. So, That's which I, is quite cute, I think. Yeah. I think that shows though that you've learned from your lucky, that shows that you've reflected on how you did things the first time around. And obviously, and times have just changed in general anyway, and the work's changed and your situation's mm. changed. That really shows that you're, like, you're speaking very consciously about how you're taking a different approach to parenting mm. with these children than your older children. Mm. So I think that's really special that you're, you're actually being, like, you, you it's not, yeah, because you, yeah. Yeah. And look, the, the other kids too, they ended up with a few injuries out of what I, put them into you know one little fella i thought i was going to be safe little bow i put him up on a rail you know to get him out of the road of the cows and first cow come on hit the gate and i flew back on his hand and and smashed one finger to pieces you know which he still got a buggered finger and damo he had a bad horse fall you know and and hurt his back and he still has trouble with his back and and you know so sometimes you, you think oh god is it worth it you know and and the little ones come out now, and it's just like even having them in the camp, you, anything could happen. Um, even contracting what I'm doing now, fencing yard building, because there's so much machinery, there's, you know, a lot of steel. and Nothing be worse than you brought them out there thinking you're doing the right thing and they'd get hurt. And I think that sits in your mind now because, um, you know, just having Teeny in the camp, she'd, you know, she broke her elbow and her bloody you know, panels fell on her and she got busted up pretty bad and broke her arm and she could have been killed like this. Many a times, Teeny was nearly killed in the, what, what we've been doing. And same as myself, the injuries that I've had, you know, bulls coming through your catcher and I got horn right through the arm and stuff like that. Yes. Like, you, you know, you're, you're 600 kilometers from town and, you know, it's a five hour wait with a flying doctors and, you know, you, it's just not, Looks, let's go down to the doctors and get it looked at. So you got all this now that brews up in your head and, and stuff like that. So look, and so we go, our life at the moment, still great. You work and you go home and there they are waiting for you, you know, and it's quite exciting, but they do miss me. They do not miss not having me around all the time and they do question me sometimes. How much longer are you going to do this, Papa? You know, so, but. I say to him, do you like toys? I'm going to work to buy your toys. And that puts them back to yeah. the you know, level. They're sort of pretty happy then. Go on, get back out to work then, Paul, I guess. Well, I think that, that kind of leads us well back into this conversation of injuries. And uh, before we get into yours, I just want to, one, you were telling me last night about one of Teenies and, and what you were just saying then about it's not like, oh, we'll just pop into town to get it checked out. Mm. There was an injury she had which she didn't get checked out for, I think it was weeks. Three weeks, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. so tell me about what happened and then what the diagnosis ended up being. Oh, we went up to um, Drysdale to um, catch Doongan, it was, apologies, um, to work for Kurt Hammer. And he was mustering right out the back of um, Doongan towards the Mitchell Plateau. And so it was probably a 90K one-way trip just to get there. So I took all the camp right out and set up on a bit of a water hole and pretty excited because it was all just bull catching. Um, we set sail that morning, caught, caught a, a truckload of bulls and 
we had me uh, a 40-foot truck out there as well, so we'd come in and unload 10 and then we'd go and get another 10, unload 10, and we'd go and catch another. So 30 bulls and then we'd do a trip back to the station and drop them off. And the first load of bulls, we'd back the pickup truck into the 40-footer and Teeny was straight up the truck and hunted them up into the front pen and shut the gate and then turned and jumped to, to you know, off the, off the 40-footer and uh, the sideboards were really close together, which he rattled her, wriggled her foot into with her Rossi boots, and her bloody feet didn't come out of the out of the side of the truck, and she come down face first and and broke her elbow clean through. But at this stage, we thought, oh no, it'll only be bruising for sure. So I told her to sit at the camp, and we'd go and catch another load of bulls, and which we did, and we went and got another load, and set. I set up sail with the young blokes into the station to get rid of them, and Teeny was still sitting in the same spot as wide as a ghost, and I said, you're right, and all that night she couldn't sleep, and for the first week it was probably bad, and she put a sling on, and I said, oh, I don't think it's broken, so I just kept carrying out that, yeah, maybe it's just sprained, and Anyway, another week come by and it was still sore, so I was just about to take her to town and Kurt Hammer turned up. Ah, that's not broken. So he, he sort of, I believed him straight away and I said, nah, you'll be right, stay another, yeah. Anyway, it turned out nearly three weeks and she had to come to Derby to pick up, pick up one of her friends and get a few stores and she goes to the hospital to find out the x-ray, her elbow was broken clean through both, you know, right around the arm, but through how she looked after it, putting it in a sling at it, it had healed quite good. So, you know, so it just shows you that, um, you've got to get things checked out, which I do now a lot, a lot of, you know, I don't hold nobody back now, but I cannot act a sook myself. I, there's no, there's no way that I'll complain about anything that happens to me now because she don't forgive me, you know, like she's realized stuff. Yeah. You can toughen it up. You buggy, <laughs> you know, you put me through pain for three weeks, you bastard. You can go, you hurt. So. Yeah. But yeah, like little things like that, you know. Oh, like, little things. I don't oh, know if big, I'd call big it. things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tell no. me about. I know you've had a a whole. You could fill a book with the injuries you've had, but there was one out at uh, somewhere in the Kimberley that was kind of, uh, I guess, at the site of a an accident from years years previous. Tell me that story um, about Stumpy. Yeah, well, yeah, the same place, Doongan, but we'd moved in from the Mitchell Plateau and we're working pretty close to Doongan Homestead and um, we had a chopper pilot go down years ago, Stumpy, the belts failed and he crashed and died and they'd put a cross up for him and buried what machine was left in the middle of this bloody, on the edge of this big river or creek and black soil flat and I was, I was up there and I was just catching for Kurt and we went out one morning early and um, two bulls were galloping, you know, not far from the site, which I put a bend in them straight away and I'm, and at the same time I'm, I'm lapping them around. I said to my worker, you know, make sure the truck driver went to go past with the pickup truck and he didn't see us. And as I'm telling him to, to stop the truck, this bull turned and I didn't see him and he comes straight through the driver's side door and his horn went straight through my arm and flicked me out past the passenger onto the other side and as we come still I'd more or less got hit in the shoulder from the bull hitting the side like the roll bar and I thought that's what was damaged anyway my worker checked it out and he couldn't see nothing so I jumped back in the buggy and as I went to change gears I put put my hand on the steering wheel and all this blood fell out of my shirt and um, 
I lifted my arm up and um, my arm sleeve, my sleeve up, and this bullet's horn had gone right through the muscle of my arm and out the other side. Which the day before, my little worker had a horn saw slide off the horn and hit his finger, and he wanted a band aid. And I sort of told him he didn't need a band aid, and he was a bit upset about something. Anyway, we had a few disagreements, and the next day I said, "Now this needs a band aid." When I showed him my arm, all hanging out with bloody blood and shit coming out of well he wasn't much help the poor little bastard passed out he fainted from the look at my arm so i got myself back to the station and and um re- not realizing that the horn had gone in and straight out the other side so they mag mag sort of half plastered it up and went to wrap it up with a bandage to realize that it had gone right through so straight away they had to get a flying doctor's in to get me to derby which, you know, four hours later, I think the flying doctors, and I'm apologising to the doctors when they got there, like, I'm so sorry, it's only a hole in my arm. And they said, oh, my God. You know, they said it's quite bloody, you know, horn and all that sort of shit goes infected pretty quick. So they said, no, nah, it's 10 out of 10 that we had to come out and pick you out. So, but, yeah, I, it's, it's, you know, I know it was sort of bad at the time, but when I got to the hospital, I think I had every nurse and every doctor wanting to know who got gored by a bull just so they could come and see it. So... <laughs> Anyway, yeah. What else has happened to you while you've, has most of the injuries been while you've been bull catching or like while you've actually been catching or is it when you're in the yards with them or in a truck? Like is there a spot that you found is the most dangerous? Uh, Look, you know, like we all look at a bull, you know, like thinking shit, a bull's dangerous. and Well, they are, but most people look at a bull or they, you know, they don't take their eyes off a a bull because he'll come out from anywhere and and that. And look, and over the years, a lot of people have been damaged by a bull and, um, about eight years ago, I was working with Hayden out the back of Billaluna and Mullen in the, like on the desert there. And we had a yard full of cattle and I kept a couple in for the, for the community to have for, for killers. And one of them was this big cow. Anyway, no one sort of come to get the killer. So I walked in the yard and I always tell people, don't run, don't run. And anyway, from an animal, just step around it. And because I'd done a lot of clowning in the Kimleys. I think everyone sort of should just face a cow and step around it and or a bull, you know. And this day, I don't know why, this big cow come for me and I thought, you know, headed for the rails and jumped up on it and uh, next minute, ooh, this cow from behind tore the bum cheeks clean out of my trousers and the horn disappeared up the, you know, where. And, um, well, yeah, it wasn't a good experience, but it took me four days to get to um, Belgo Hospital to let them know what was going on. And, uh, yeah, I had three layers of skin missing off one bum cheek and, the, and luckily there was no damage. But yeah, like I, it, yeah, quite frightening. Um, but that's how quick it is. I just turned my eye off this thing for one minute and it could have been. Yeah, all over for the rest of my life, but I think something was on my side, you know. Cows are like bulls, bulls are, I feel like they're pretty upfront with you. Like yeah. you can kind of tell from the get go if they're grumpy, if they're, but cows, they can be, I reckon, real sneaky. And it's always yeah. the ones, if you're in a yard, it's the ones right in the back corner that are kind of hiding, got their head down or, yeah, or just 100%. got their eyes peeing over. And yeah. I just feel like they can be really, um, yeah, like, like, uh, like a snake in the grass. Yeah, like 100%. you don't know until, until they, t- whereas at least a bull, they're kind of upfront and what you see is what you get. Yeah. But a cow, like you never know which one you can trust. Yeah, that's exactly. And I've seen a lot of, a lot of people get hurt by a cow, you know, or horned by a cow. And, uh, yeah, no, like some of the injuries, it's, you know, like there's another one where it, like bull catching, everyone thinks it's great fun, but there's so much adrenaline 
and so much in a bull catcher. When you're chasing a bull, you think, oh, you're in a big machine, all you got to do is hit it hard and you knock it over. Well, that's not the case. You, you know, when you're chasing a bull, you've got to realise you can't bruise it, you can't take skin off it, you can't damage it in any way because that animal to you is worth prop, like money. It's it's worth money. And to sell that animal, it's like handing a piece of fruit to a buyer. If it's got a black spot on it or it's soft in one area, they don't want it. They throw it away. And that's pretty well what they do to your animal. So... The respect that you have for that animal first when you're chasing it is amazing. But the, the also, when you go to chase that animal, it's the old, the, the, the area that you got to catch him in. So you're in a machine with long grass. There's gullies, breakaway gullies, there's trees, there's everything, ant beds in front of you. So you must remember when you're driving that catcher, one, you, you can't damage yourself or hurt the machine because you can't catch another bull. The objects around you. You've got to drive and miss them and also concentrate on what you're catching. So, you know, a lot of people just think that it's, boom, you're in there and you just, it's got, it's got to be easy. But sometimes the areas that you're catchable, adrenaline and you're not fear, but you get dry in the mouth through thinking, shit, you know, and the last thing you want to do is wreck a machine, a car or a bull catcher over one bull when you've got another 10,000 to catch. Or a thousand to catch or whatever's on the station, you know. So, um, that's probably your biggest injuries. Like if you can be flat thinking everything's right and you hit an ant bed, which has happened. And I hit an, I, no, no, not an ant bed. I've hit a bloody break a gay, breakaway gully once. And one old boy that worked for me dearly a lot of times, Gordon Dan, he went from the passenger seat over onto the bonnet. He looked like a bloody bulldog sitting on my bonnet the time I finished. And I thought, holy shit, you know, and my teeth, I was winded by the steering wheel and smashed my teeth. I could have knocked all my teeth out. Like, just simple little things like that, that is probably the most dangerous about chasing a bull. And after you've caught bulls for a while, you realise, don't go going through long grass flat out. Like, at least check it out first or, you know, like, yeah, we'll get him tomorrow. Don't chase him there. Wait until he's in a better spot. So you, at the end of the day, you work out when to chase him and not to chase him. So sounds like you have to learn some self control and some patience to, like you said, to maybe not chase him today and and have a go at him tomorrow. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. And you know, I've had a few pilots where they think, oh shit, he didn't get him. I'll just shoot it. The worst thing you can do to me is shoot an animal because if it's not tomorrow, if it's not this year, it'll be next year, he'll come out somewhere and you'll catch him. Um, a lot of people think, nah, just shoot him, you'll never see him. That's bullshit. He'll always be there one day. And as a contractor, every dollar counts. You know, like the last thing you want to do is someone come along shooting all your animals when one day you know that you'll catch them, you know. There's probably a few old cunning buggers out there that's never been caught, but, you know, good luck to them. They're heroes to me, you know. So, yeah, nah. There's a lot of, lot of different things in, in catching. You know, it's not all about just, that's what a lot of people say. Oh, I can't wait to go bull catching. It must be great fun. I said, yeah, for about three days. And then it's physically, you know, you got to catch it. You got to load it, you know. And look, it is getting better. These arms are coming out now. That's making it a little bit easier, but still there's a lot of work involved in what the boys are doing. So. And I know it's not just been in catching that you've had a few injuries in your time in rodeo and clowning and. Being in the arena, you've had a few. Tell mm. me about those. Oh, well, I clowned up in Derby, Fitzroy, like in the Kimley area for 14 to 15 years. And, um, look, I've 
picked a lot of boys off the ground that had a few injuries. I think one of the worst was in Turkey Creek and a, oh, back then Mabel Downs used to send bullocks in with massive racks, you know, big horny bullocks. And, and I seen this young bloke get slung over the front a little and his head sort of come down and hit the bullock. And straight away I knew it was pretty serious. So as I picked the boy up off the ground, I covered his face with my hand and hobbled him straight to the ambulance. And as I got him to the ambulance, I said, I'm pretty sure it's hit his eye. And the ambulance grabbed him and took him off me, but his eye was still in my hand. Oh, yeah. I was not and, expecting that. Yeah. And they're some of the things oh, that I've helped, helped off the ground. And injuries myself is I've been lucky, you know, like I've been hit hard, I've been jumped on, I've had bruised ribs and bruised kidneys. Where Did I've, you break your arms though? Was that what you guys were saying upstairs before? No, no, there's one time when I um I got jumped on by a bull. I, I spun to get out of his road and, and head-butted it, which he blinked because a bull just before he hits you will close his eyes. So, but we'd already collided. So this bull lost where he was. He didn't know where I was and he landed right on top of my kidneys. And at that stage, um, Teeny had just had a bad accident and broke her arms with all these panels. So the first person there to help me off the ground to take me to the ambulance was Teeny, which was, had two black eyes, a broken arm, stitches all over her face. And here she was trying to help me to the, to the ambulance and actually, Sadly, Toddy Walsh was gone now, but Toddy Walsh was announcing, going, what a bloody sight this is. Who's helping who out here? You know, <laughs> as she hobbled me to the ambulance. So, um, yeah, the, you know, like, the areas I've been in front of a bull, there should be a lot more injuries, but I think through the station work that we've done and the people like, you know, Jamie Gray and Bruce Gray and Peter Gray, they taught you all this about Bulls when we were bull throwing and we got damn close when you're bull throwing. I think it's, it was just a knack, you know, you've learnt not to run from them and, yeah, and do not hesitate, you know. So, yeah, no, there's been, I've been lucky really with the clowning and, um, I used to do a lot of trick clowning. So I'd come out and ski behind horses and shit like that barefoot. And I think once a horse kicked me and air broke my arm, but my watch, I remember I was wearing a watch, and when the horse kicked me from scaring behind, hanging onto his tail, the watch went something like 70 metres into the crowd, and a person caught it and brought it back to me, but the shock of the watch getting kicked, all the hands blew off it, so the whole watch was completely buggered. But um, shit like that, like, you know, the crowd loved it. They thought, holy shit, and, like, they all seen this thing fly off my hand, so... But, yeah, I think that's one of the lucky ones that could have been in my face or in my guts or anywhere. But, yeah, lucky it just hit my arm. So There's just – I'm just so sitting here right now. I'm just thinking, like, this is why I do this. This is why I do this podcast. Just thinking back on all the things we've spoken about over the last hour and a half, and thank you so much for your time, is, like, what incredible stories, what an incredible life. Yeah, look, look, we could talk for another hour and a half and stories keep popping up, and especially in, in the station, in our, what, what you see on a station. And, you know, like someone will come and I've had a few people like National Geographic actually wanted to do a story on me years ago. And they said, Oh, we've got two days to do a story. And I said, forget it. Nothing will happen in two days. You've got to spend two months. And in two months, you'll see what happens on a station. You know what I mean? Like, um, 
And oh, yeah, so much good stuff can happen in a station. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of, and for the time you spend in the camp, you don't see much bad stuff. And when mm. you do, it might be bad or could be bad. And, but in general, there's a lot of really good days and, um, long days. And, um, but every day is a different day. The last little topic I guess I want to talk to you about is something that came up just before when I'd given you the heads up uh, on my final question, which is looking back on your life so far, what would you say is the major takeaway lesson? And you shared a bit of a story which kind of went with the lesson that you've learned. So I was wondering if you could talk to that as we wrap up. Yeah. I think, um, oh, look, I've just got to say that it took me a long time to um, realise that when you do what you're doing is you got to love what you, you love your, you know, you got to love what you do yourself. So if, um, yeah, I, it took me a long time. A lady said to me once, you know, what, do you love yourself? Do you love what you do? And I said, oh, I love what I do, but I don't love myself. Why would I love myself? And, and she said, well, you're no good to me until you realize that you've got to love what you do and love who you are and love yourself or, you know, where are you going to end up in life? And I thought about it and I thought, well, shit, in my life I've, you know, I've done a few crazy things and silly things and people hate you for what you do and but then I've done a lot of good things and some people still don't like what you do. So at the end of the day you've got to realise you've got to love what you do, you've got to love who you are and love yourself and otherwise no one's there to help you out, like you're on your own. And if you can get by that, and think back, well, what I've done, I've done. I can't cut, draw it out. And, yeah, just love what you do in life, I think, and love who you are, and you'll go a long way.